It's time to accelerate. This is Alec, Andy's son. I'm filling him for today while he's on vacation. Excuse me, this week. Welcome to episode 651 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. Joining me today on Accelerate is Libby Gill, executive coach, leadership expert, and author of the new book, The Hope Driven Leader, Manage the Power of Positivity at Work. We've all heard the expression, hope is not a strategy. Well, in her new book, Libby writes that strategies and plans are doomed for failure if they're not built on a foundation of hope and positivity. Libby will also discuss the research that finds how disengaged the average American worker is and why hope is an essential element in helping workers in all fields, and especially in sales, to deal with the never-ending change and the stresses that accompany it. It's a great conversation. If you'd like to see the show notes for this episode, go to andypaul.com backslash 651, uh, the number 651. We provide a timestamped breakdown of this and all conversations on Accelerate. Check it out. And if you're a top performer in your current role and you're looking for a fresh challenge to take your career to the next level, then CenturyLink should be at the top of your list. With its recent acquisition of Level 3, the new CenturyLink is a world leader in providing cloud, security, real-time communication, hybrid IT, and managed services. If you want the excitement, challenge, and rewards that come from selling industry-leading service to the enterprise, then visit CenturyLink.com accelerate. Again, that's CenturyLink.com accelerate. And join their talent community. Once you join the talent community, a member of their team will reach out soon to connect and see if a career at CenturyLink is the right step for you. All right, let's get to it. Here's Libby Gill and Andy. Libby Gill, welcome back to Accelerate. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you back. And uh, today we're going to talk about a new book that you've written that's that's coming out very shortly. And I found... It was interesting. I mean, I, I a incredibly well researched book, by the way. So, congratulations on that. And um, book is titled "The Hope Driven Leader: Harnessing the Power of Positivity Positivity at Work." And as I was sort of reading it, I was sort of I'm sure this is not the first time I've heard this. Is that you know, the book sort of stands on its head the old saying that hope is not a strategy. It, in fact, that was what I had hoped <laughs> the title would be. Uh, because it's it's exactly that that we think hope is not a strategy, hope is not a plan. But what I've I've told people for years is that if you try to provide tools or resources or training or whatever to a workforce that's feeling hopeless, it, it just doesn't go very far. You need to sense and infuse that sense of of positiveness before you can get people to change and grow. Okay, so. Yeah, hope is a strategy, as you're saying, if, if not the strategy in some cases, and as you talk about in the book. So I think the first thing is to dive into is that people are sort of confuse happiness or optimism with hope. And you're saying these are cousins, but not, not the same. Not the same. And happiness, there's been uh, obviously a lot of research about happiness, which is great. And, and happiness is pretty much what we think it is. It's a, it's a positive feeling about life and absence of negative, overwhelming negative emotions. You know, things are good. Mm-hmm. Optimism, this is where people get confused. Optimism is a generalized sense of 
wow, it's all going to turn out okay, taken to the worst, it's the rose-colored glasses of it doesn't make any difference what I do or anybody else does, it'll be fine, which is what the the hope theorists, and there's now a, a real body of science around hope, call false hope. But uh, hope is different in that it is attached to actions. So it's specific and situational and future-focused. It's a, it's a belief that if I do this, if I tie my belief to my behavior toward this vision, recognizing the pitfalls, I can get there. So it's anything but a generalized sense of, hey, it's all going to be okay. It's saying, look, I've set the bar really high. I really want this, whatever it is. I'm going to work really hard to get it. I recognize the pitfalls. But I, I, I feel like I'm in control of my destiny and I can make it happen. So that's well, true hope. So, so hope is optimism with a plan. <laughs> Basically, yeah. with a plan and taking, uh, taking action and, and, and also it's recognizing that the world is changing. You know, we live in – you talk about acceleration all the time, Andy. So it's so, it's so overwhelming to think that right now – we may be experiencing the slowest rate of change we will ever experience again. I mean, think about that. It's, our world is changing so quickly around us that if we don't recognize that we are the ones who drive the outcomes, it, it's an individual exercise. That's one of the key components of hope is that, first of all, it's a fundamental belief that change is possible. And while some people think, well, doesn't everybody believe that? You know, just think about somebody in your life who doesn't, because everybody doesn't believe change is possible. And then it's an expectation that what you do as an individual, it's not the people around you, it's not your boss, your spouse, not the government, it's your actions that create your future. So once you anchor in that, wow, it's completely up to me. Not that you don't need other people to help you along the way, because certainly we all do, but it's, it's knowing that I change the world, I change the outcome. My actions make the difference. And and no matter how hard the going gets, that if it's important, if it's significant for you, your community, your family, and in the case of those real, what I think of as the heroes of hope, those guys, and I don't include myself in this group, they changed the world. I mean, you think about those people who who really have made such a significant change in the way, I mean, we think about, when you think about um, shopping online, which I guess nearly everybody does now, but Amazon's only been here since 1994. That's not that long ago. Uber, I mean, that's such a funny thing that, you know, 40 million users per month. So our world, and now nobody, you don't miss the beat. You just hop in somebody's Prius and go to the airport. But if you stop and think, those are radical changes, and now they're just continuing to speed up around us. So we got to grab on and, and harness our own sense of positivity about change and growth and, and go with it as opposed to, you know, stepping back or worrying about it or, or not embracing it. So you use the term positivity. So do you distinguish that from hope? I do think it's it's a broader sense of it's more attitudinal. It's a sense of and and, and it encompasses all of that hope, happiness, optimism. Positivity is is what you take into the workplace, into your family, into your community. It's that sense, and you know those people when they show up that kind of light up a room, and and they don't have to be those you know those outsized heroes of hope that are real pioneers changing the world. But it's those people who say, you know, I'm going to come into my group. I, I'll give you an example. 
example, if I may, and it's it's from a sales team I worked with and did a day-long strategy session with this group at, at Abbott Medical, which is a medical device company. Mm-hmm. And as you well know, salespeople are very, they, they got to stay motivated. You get lots and lots of no's before you get that yes. And, um, and I love salespeople because they are so driven by their own positive spirit or, you know, it's a kind of an eat what you kill world. You got to get out there and make it happen. But this group, we did a day-long strategy session, and then they wanted to reward their team. And our strategy session was about 50 people, and then they invited another 100 or so to celebrate that evening by taking a a cruise around, uh, this was in Chicago, around Lake Michigan. And it was a surprise for their team. But the best surprise was when people boarded the the yacht, and there were the, the head of sales and the three regional managers dressed in, uh, they had on waiter's jackets, and they were standing at the top of the the ramp up to the yacht holding trays of wine and champagne. They wanted their people to know they were not only being honored, that they, the the ostensibly the leaders and the managers, were there to serve their team. And it was such a clever and fun thing to do. And it made people laugh. It made them feel honored. It made them feel hopeful about being part of that team. And it was... well, let's dive into yep. that because so, yeah, I mean, I've been with companies where, you know, management team, as part of management team, we've done similar things, but but connect for people the dots you know, between, you know, this type of, you know, servant leadership, if you want to use that term, as I think you use in the book as well, as, as and connect that to that and how it, you know, builds how hope it- in other people. Well, I, I use the word servant leadership particularly because I got such a kick out of the fact that they were literally serving sure. um, and they took it very seriously. But what it does is it, it it recognizes people in a way that connects them to the organization. And the most important thing leaders can do, and it, it doesn't matter if you're a young millennial or you're, you've been in business for 30 years, it's it forces you to look at yourself and think about how am I leading? Am I leading in a way that makes people feel excited to come to work, uh, loyal to the organization, recognized for all the things that they do? Not that everybody's perfect all the time, but that they get a sense of what I do matters. And you can be the new kid, you know, they're right out of college. I'm just starting with this company. And you may not have the loftiest um, role or job at that point, but when you Understand what you do, where you are in that machine, and you can connect your contributions on a day-to-day basis to where the company is going. It gives you a much greater sense of of purpose and identity and belonging to that organization. So it really, I, I really feel like there's no neutrality in the sense of feeding, feeding hope. You're you're either feeding it or you're starving it. And we've all been in those situations where getting up and going to work was just a dismal exercise as opposed to something, you know, we couldn't wait to jump out of bed and get to the office. And people that feel that um, are really, they're really fortunate. And it's a two-way street. You've got to do it for yourself. But when you're working for a boss who recognizes that you're important and I'm going to take this opportunity to show it in a way that's meaningful and, and fits your culture. I mean, that, that wouldn't work for everybody. There would be groups where, you know, there's your boss in a waiter's jacket and you would think, you know, has this guy gone bonkers? But in certain situations, and people have to express it in a way that's authentic, that's meaningful, that fits their their group. And these guys just nailed it. And people felt 
so special. They just felt, because that was the beginning of the evening, and, and Gray Fleming at Abbott and his team continued to serve throughout, literally serve throughout the cocktail hour and into dinner, and on into their awards banquet, after which people who won awards came up and signed their jackets. So, so it's... But, but again, to sort of try to square the circle or whatever, is, is so... When people feel appreciated, is what you're saying, is mm-hmm. that then will build a sense of almost seems like it almost seems like the first step is it builds optimism, which then opens the door to the hope, as you say, if, which is looking forward with some sort of plan. Right now, I feel more motivated. What's the plan I'm going to put together to take advantage of these feelings that I have? Right. Where are we going? And of course, and it's it it is the strategic part is critical because then the leader has to say, you know, this company happened to be going through a lot of change, and saying, wait, it's going to be bumpy for a while. We're not quite there yet, but we're all going to get there together. So it's 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 building this positive and team spirit, and then saying, here's where we're going, and here's your part in this puzzle. So people have a real sense of. We're all marching towards the same destination, and I see where I am in that chain. And when people get that sense of it, – it removes some of the fear and the lack of trust, and people feel honored for the work that they're doing, and they see where they're supposed to be heading, and they understand what their day-to-day work is that's going to get them there. And, and I think it's important for leaders to sit back and think, well, am I doing that? Am I infusing, it doesn't even matter, I call it hope, but am I infusing that sense of future vision and positive spirit? And when you look at the statistics on on engagement versus disengagement, I mean, that's that's Gallup's done this 30 years of, I'm sure you've heard the stats, but 67% of the workforce disengage. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, that's shocking. I often will ask groups if they believe that number, and many of them, most of them tell me they think it's lower, that there are more disengaged people, which is, I mean, to me is, is pretty alarming. And it, it comes at a huge cost in terms of productivity. Gallup says it's $400 billion a year lost in uh, lack of productivity. So think about it. If you can excite, infuse, you know, get, get your team fired up and ready to work hard, even in times of stress and change, then they can overcome those difficulties and say, hey, we're in this together. We're going to do this. We're going to pull this off, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, it seems to some degree like in – this is not meant to be a negative at all, but it's it's sort of as you're putting it together in terms of rallying, infusing the sense of of vision within an organization. Yeah, I, I can just again using the reword, the envision managers and and CEOs and so on who are listening to this program, thinking, well, this, yeah, yeah, we've been doing that. This seems like sort of a, a repackaging to some degree of 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 you know, best practices that we should be doing. What So what is it uniquely about hope that, that lends a difference or angle to it? It's being very um, clear about linking behaviors to beliefs. So when you identify what your underlying beliefs are, this is what I hold dear. This is where I draw the line in the sand. This is what where I think the business needs to go. And you collect those, you connect those beliefs to those behaviors. These are the actions that need to happen. Uh, whether you're turning a business around or you're turning a team around, it's really that sense of um, of looking at the world in a new way. And I mean, even the conversations that swirl around us, and I had mentioned to you earlier, of course, you know, we're recording on International Women's Day in month. And 
times have changed. I mean, women have fought this battle for a long time, and now it's it's sort of bursting at the seams in terms of how women are stepping up in Hollywood and business and government, all of that with the Me Too movement and everything else, is that we are, are finding that voice to say, we don't want to do business like we used to. Do I have to be tough and mean to be uh, effective? Can I be a compassionate leader without looking weak? And really just t- turning that lens on ourselves and saying, how do I best lead? There is no one way, but how do I best lead to bring out the the strength in myself and the best in others? And I think that's an exercise. It may be repackaged, but you know there are only X number of truisms, I think, in the world, but it's really a different way of saying, wow, the world is changing. Have I changed? Have I grown? And, you know, in in about five minutes in 2020, we're going to be outnumbered by millennials. And I still hear tons of leaders saying, oh, they're coddled, they're entitled, all of that. Well, you know, you better get with the program and figure out how to inspire. I happen to think millennials, and I've got two of my own, so I may be biased, but I'm also – yeah. So you are probably witness to the fact that, yeah, maybe they've all grown up, you know, getting their their trophy at soccer or whatever. I, I don't that I don't care much about that cliche, but I see them as very purpose driven young people. They think we've screwed up the world, quite frankly, and they're the, going to be the ones who have to change it. So I do think that the boomers, the people who've been in business for a long time, need to get over those notions of, yeah, maybe they are entitled. Maybe they do want to uh, fly up the ladder. And, you know, I'm a baby boomer, but I went from being an assistant to being a vice president and division head in five years. It was a really fast growth. And I did it, I think, not because I'm so brilliant, but because I kept raising my hand and thinking, I'm going to give it a shot. I'll figure it out later. And and I kept moving forward saying, what's the next thing? Where's the next hill? What do I have to do? How do I prove myself? And it wasn't an easy slog. I mean, entertainment was not particularly friendly towards women and uh, millennials, or it, it was a tough business. And I was usually one of of two or three women on the senior team of a dozen or more. And mm-hmm. um, we really had to prove ourselves. But I think it's just time for us to step back and look at how how are we how are we leading? How have we changed in light of a changing a rapidly changing world? Well, I think that another word, and the way you use beliefs to me is is throughout the book is it really seems. For me, I mean, it, it really spoke more about values and and that that's a conversation that's not had enough in in business. I mean, it's certainly obviously with with what's going on with Me Too, I mean, we're talking about complete lack and absence of values on the part of many people. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, not talking just about moral values, but, you know, values in general as, as humans that inform everything we do and the way that we look at the world in terms of what we believe in. I, I I agree with you completely, and I think what values have become in the corporate or in the business world is it's something we're going to write a list, we're going to put it on a plaque, mission, we're going to hang mission, it up. Mission statement, right? Exactly. Vision and mission. I hear that everywhere I go. Vision and mission. Yeah, but do you live by it? Do you measure yourself against it? Do you hire towards those values and principles? And and I think. It's really personal, and I, you know, well, I think that's the business. Thing. I mean, to me, to me, values is very individual, and it is. I think it is a tough thing. It's a to hire for. I mean, people. Yeah, we put our mission statement, quote value statement on the wall. We're going to hire to that. Yeah, yeah. No. What do you? What do you about the individual? Because I think this is this this. I think is to me is sort of the crux of the matter. Is yeah, if you have belief in in yourself and belief in 
what's possible from a positive standpoint going forward, informed by you as an individual, not some team vision or values. But here's the thing, when you are willing, it, it's partly the, the willingness to share those beliefs. And one thing I try to do when I work with groups is, you know, I'll often have them share what I call a jaw dropper and you know, turn to somebody you don't know, not the person who's sitting next to you, who's your best friend at work and share something about your personal or professional life. Doesn't matter what that you were most proud of. And I usually make one disclaimer. It's like, take family out of the equation or everyone feels obligated to say their kids or their family. Mm. Barring that, what are you most proud of in your career? And people will share, I've had people share things that colleagues that have known them 20 years had no idea. I have one guy working on a communications team, had a PhD in English literature, and none of his colleagues even knew that, even though it was relevant to his work, because so much of what he did was messaging and writing. And they were like, what? You have what? Um, there was another young woman who had started a nonprofit and it was, as a kid, it was giving prom dresses away to people that couldn't afford them. And her colleagues heard that and they were blown away. And, you know, they're just all these things. When you understand that there is some goodness, I hope, in, in most of us, and you're willing to put those beliefs and values on the table and say, okay, so do, where do all these connect? What does this mean to us as a group? Because I do think values and beliefs come from that individual place but when you share them when you find the the overlap then you've got a team value then you've got and 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 when they're spoken like real people which is why I like people to share their jaw dropper about what they really do one woman was at a finance company and she used to be a hip hop promoter mm-hmm. which had no relationship to being a finance person but everybody heard that it was like wow, no wonder you're so great at events and social media and you just kill it in this area. It gave them not only newfound respect, but this sense of, I know you on a deeper level than I never did before. You're not just a colleague, you're a human being. And when people are willing to disclose those kinds of things, and I've done it with some groups that are pretty tough to crack in terms of, you know, we're the skeptics and the cynics. We don't talk about our personal lives. And then they share something that is so personal. And and what I do, then is I have their partners share the story so they can hear it from somebody else's mouth. And they often will sit there and think, wow, that's, that is impressive. You know, the way you tell it about me, that's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of cool after all. And they hear that and, and it connects them to each other on that very human level. Because, you know, at heart, we attach to stories, not, not data. And, and leaders who create that narrative for their group by recognizing, I know you as a human being. And granted, you can't know 30,000 people, but you can know 30 people really well. And then those 30 people should know the next 60 down. But when you encourage that kind of thing, we're, we're humans. I'll, I'll give you another example, Andy, because you were, you were probing and asking. But I had a leader that I worked with who uh, had his you know, Monday morning status update with his team, and they came in and spewed whatever updates they had. And he felt like, you know, it's just not – we're not as collaborative. We're not as connected as I'd like us to be. So he decided the first 15 minutes of that status meeting with his direct reports was about something personal. Share something personal. I don't care. Your kid's soccer game, what you did over the weekend, where you're going on vacation this Mm -hmm, summer. mm -hmm. And everybody looked at him like, you know, what's the trick? What book did you read? What seminar did you attend? And they were very skeptical. And he decided, I don't care. I'm going to stick with it. 
And he led the way and he shared personal things. And about two months into it, people began really loving that part of the interaction and really getting to know each other on a human level. And he saw their numbers climb. He saw their productivity increase and particularly saw people communicating and collaborating on a very um, non-hierarchical, it wasn't a formal thing. It was just, I know that guy, I want to help him out. Mm. Gee, I know that, that gal on a different level. Oh, this would be really useful for you. And people became much more honest and much more open and much more collaborative because they knew each other. And that's what it does. And those are shared values. They find where the common connection is. And well, then yeah, when the, companies well, the common connection oftentimes is, and this again is part I think that's overlooked is because we, whether we're so busy we can't be bothered, the common connection is is the humanity. Exactly right. And and this is a thing I think companies so over, <laughs> overlook too often is that yeah the the common we're looking for connections the connections we're all human and you know your exercise is a great exercise you know if you do something similar to that you know. Tell us, share something that no one else knows. Um, yeah, and but at the same time is sometimes even the inverse is you know talk about you know something you wanted really wanted but didn't get right. That's yeah, you know, failures. The vulnerability also uh, is a part that people have such a hard time these days in business is just demonstrating vulnerability because that oh. is hugely attractive to other people to be able to <laughs> to see that you know they're not alone. Yeah, I, I learned that lesson myself. I, I wrote a book years ago called Traveling Hopefully, which is where I first started seeing hope as my kind of, that's my value. It's it's what gets you out of bed and, and mm-hmm, keeps you mm-hmm, going when mm-hmm. life is tough. And I, share, I shared a, a story from this book that I had never shared at a speaking event, much less a business event, and about being a, a kid who had grown up in a house of mental illness and alcoholism and a family member committed suicide. And I told that story. Um, and and I, it was actually, it was a women's group. And I thought, oh, they'll get it and they'll relate. And I had so many people come up to me and thank me for, hey, you look so successful. And yet, you had this really difficult thing you overcame. And it wasn't just that. It was many business setbacks like everybody else does, but I shared them. And so I thought, well, maybe this is a worthwhile story to share. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm speaking at Cisco and it's an international group and, you know, people from other cultures and countries and mostly men. And mm. I'll share it here and see what happens. And it was exactly the same result. People said that was really touching, and I get it, and I've had this kind of setback in my personal or professional life, and when we're willing to share those, then we not only become human, but as you said, vulnerable. Well, which gives gives people hope, because people are saying, look, I, I didn't realize anybody else was going through the same things I was going through. Yeah, and I'm still standing. And whatever that thing was, and I've had people tell me stories about, you know, being their family being evicted when they were kids, or mm-hmm. a woman who who was raped, or people who've been fired, you know, in their 60s and didn't see it coming. You know, whatever that setback is, as, as humans, we sort of experience it in similar ways. You know, go you go through that grief and mourning process. Some people take it, it blame themselves. Some people, you know, you can either turn internal and and suffer, or you can turn external and blame. Others, but when you take a hard look at yourself and say, you know, this either knocked me down forever and I'm still down there, or it knocked me down for a period of time and hey, I'm upright, I'm standing, and here's how I got past it. 
that is one thing we've all experienced. I I don't know anybody who's had the perfect life. So that's a point of connection. And and you're absolutely right. When we're willing to share that, it it bonds us with other people in a profound way. Yeah, yeah. So just a few minutes left, but one other topic I wanted to get into with you from the book is, is, I thought, an interesting observation. You're saying that that yeah, we are in this you know environment where there's this constant change, unceasing change. I think from some people's perspective, and to your point earlier, you know, is this the slowest rate of change we're going to experience, or is it the greatest? Who knows? We can't predict, but mm-hmm. I think we can predict that change will continue. Is yeah. is you have this thing you write about? You say that paradoxically, as changes are implemented more and more swiftly leaders will need to loosen their hold on the workforce and through transparency of mission and constant communication, effective future leaders will foster trust, collaboration, encouraging coworkers to develop deep and meaningful relationships. So I thought that was very interesting because, um, you know, one of the things that we're, we're seeing as, re- as certainly in, in sales is as a result of many of these changes and the, uh, Increasing use of technology and sales, the ability to track more what people are doing, and big data, machine learning, da 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 da. That what we see is that in many respects, sales is becoming more rigid in the processes right. they use, and it's all about you know now that we have access to the data, we're going to measure people in the data. So the metrics become more important than the necessarily the quality of the interaction in many companies, and which again paradoxically is is the opposite of what you are sort of describing here. And just sort of interested to see what what you meant by loosening the hold and how you saw that coming about. Well, with the rapidity of change, and um, and and just the challenges we have, and as you say, that being so data driven, which is not unimportant. Obviously, you've got to have that. Um, the, there's one of the hope pioneers who was a. a, a positive psychologist uh, out of the University of Kansas, really the pioneer in this field, a fellow named Dr. C.R. Snyder, he said it's about willpower and waypower. And willpower being what we think of, grit, stamina, emotional perseverance, although he said if you don't set the bar high enough, the willpower won't be there because you don't really care. But the other piece of it was waypower defined as multiple pathways to an end goal. So if you think about really identifying to your team where the end goal is. We all know where we have to get, whether that's a number or an accomplishment or a result, but you find the way to get there. That's the way power. There are lots of ways to get there because we're no longer you know, speeding up the assembly line so we can produce more. We're, we're dealing with ideas and information and imagination. So if you give people ownership and sort of authorship of the path, and they have to find their way there. Not only are you giving them ownership of the project for good or for bad, and I'm not suggesting you, you know, you bet the company on your brand new intern that you do this thoughtfully, right. but th- then people are forced to find their way there. You're no longer micromanaging people, but you're saying, hey, you've got the skills, you've got the training, here's the end goal, go. I'm going to check in appropriately, and if it's a younger person on your team or newer in the business, you check in more often. That's just logical and reasonable, reasonable. or you set more milestones for them. If it's, it's a more seasoned person, it's like, here's the end goal. Go after it. Call me when you have a problem. Then you've really got to do that because we can't any longer – 
tell people every step of the way. We don't report to one boss anymore. Well, but this I mean, is, but that's that's the contradiction, right? Is that yeah? Is that given the availability of the data, is the default yeah. for many businesses say, well, I can manage every step of the way because I now have visibility into every step of the way that I didn't have before, and managers have a hard time trusting individuals to develop their own pathways you talk about. And th- and I think th- I think it's a real negative because I think that certainly in sales this is how this is how I developed my skills, my expertise, my ability to make things happen with with customers was yeah, we had a process, but within that process I had the freedom to develop my own pathways you talked about. And and this is disappearing unfortunately in in too many cases and and part of what I'm trying to do is advocate that it needs to change because otherwise we're just going to get a generation of automatons who can't problem solve in the way they need to. I, I agree with you. And, and you know, as, as human beings, as much as we feel like we make buying decisions or any decisions by, by rationale and logic, we feel before we think. We Absolutely. feel first. And you know that. You've got to make a connection with somebody before you hit them with a sale. If you don't have that emotional connection already established, you know, you're, you're good, you're, your pitch is falling on deaf ears. And while the data can be used to provide those sort of guardrails, you know, check this out. You need to know this. Uh, it's exactly what you said. Within that framework, figure out how you do it. I mean, one of my favorite salespeople that I work with who was a a former teacher, and she said, I didn't even realize I was really in sales until I was selling things, and it was my desire to teach and train, Mm -hmm. to make people better at what they did that made me a really good salesperson. Mm -hmm. So. I, I think you're right, is we can't allow, and I think millennials are, the way they've grown up, I think they, they are hardwired for this. I think they want that emotional purpose. Well, and I, they've, yeah, they do. It's the managers, unfortunately, though, the problem. I know. And so that's what my whole book is about. You've got to infuse that sense of hope. You've got to infuse a, a sense of purpose and excitement even. And, and we have lost that along the way because our default is, well, the data's telling me to do this. And I have a friend who's all about the data and she'll say to me, well, you need to look at your net metrics and you need to do an A-B split test and you need to do this and that. Some of her advice I take and some of it I say, look, I work in a, a business, particularly on the speaking side and, and writing and coaching, it's got level. If they don't like me at that first in, in the coaching world, as you probably know, they call it a chemistry meeting and they'll send in three people that seem to have the right fit and background to work with a senior leader at a Fortune 500 company. Mm-hmm. But if I don't make a connection, and convince them that I've got what's going to help them. And frankly, if I don't, I don't even want to be there. But it's that connection that gets them to say, oh, she's the one. She's got it. She understands. She's going to push me. She gets who I am. I'm not. I'm scared, but I'm not scared of, of what I need to do. I, yeah, I have a trust level there already. Mm-hmm. And that's what managers, that's why I'm saying senior leaders, we need to we need to stop and look at ourselves at the way, and I, I just wrote a post and part of it is in the book about, are you a likable leader? And that does not mean a pushover or somebody's nice to a fault. It means, do people want to jump on board? Do they want to follow your lead? Do they want to go where you're going? And have you given them a sense of, hey, I can do that. I've got a lot to learn. But I can learn from this person. I can grow here without being shamed for my failures. That's another thing. We, we just well, hate to admit our failures. Yeah. Well, the likability is, is interesting. We could spend another half hour on that. I mean, there's <laughs> you know, the thing about people 
being likable is I think the real impact of that is that when you're dealing with someone who's likable is you perceive that they like you. And yes. that's really the motivator to jump on board is you think, oh, they like me as opposed to, oh, I really like that person. It's that reciprocation that I think that's really the the key there. So, well, Libby, we could, like I said we could go on and on, um, <laughs> but thank you very much for the time. So tell folks how to uh, learn more about your book and connect with you. They can go to my website, LibbyGill.com, and and download the first chapter right on my homepage. And of course, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the uh, it's available now for pre order online, and it'll be out on April tenth. Excellent. All right. Well, Libby, thank you very much, and uh, friends, thank you for spending this time with us today. Make sure you come back and join us again for the very next episode of Accelerate. So until then, good selling, everyone. 